this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Good morning, everybody. I'm Corrine Tan. I'm one of the thoracic surgery residents at Baylor College of Medicine, and I have with me today Dr. Gabriel Lohr. He's the associate professor of surgery here with us and the surgical director of the lung transplant program at Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center. Dr. Lohr, thank you for joining us today, and um, congratulations on your recent grant uh, for this ex vivo lung re- uh, perfusion uh, strategy. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about lung transplant today, and I have a first case scenario. It's a 24-year-old female with cystic fibrosis who has been referred to you for workup of lung transplantation. She uses about 4 liters of oxygen at rest and 8 liters on exertion. Her FEV1 is less than 30% predicted, and she has had increased frequency of hospitalization in the last 6 months. Um, you know, at this point, is there anything else in her history that you'd be uh, wanting to look into, or what other preoperative workup uh, that you would be looking out for? Yeah, so... So this is not an uncommon scenario. Um, uh, Cystic fibrosis is uh, one of uh, many different indications for lung transplant. It does have pulmonary manifestations. Not everyone with cystic fibrosis goes on to need a lung transplant, but a fair portion do. Uh, And patients sort of uh, live their whole lives with that thought in the back of their minds. it's uh, patients are living older and older now. So 24 is about probably where the average is. It's not unlikely that it's not uncommon now that we're finding folks even in their 40s and 50s with cystic fibrosis um, coming in to be valued for transplant. Uh, in those scenarios, we we probably get into more comorbidities, more cardiac disease, more um, additional pathologies that we have to worry about because of age. The younger patients, you're almost uh, really just looking at. Uh, factors that have been affected by the cystic fibrosis alone, um, which aren't trivial. Uh, we, we'd like to get a sense of, of how this patient's course has gone from a systemic, systematic standpoint as well as from a pulmonary standpoint. So systematically, from a systemic standpoint, be GI issues, um, has she had pancreatitis, has she had um, gastroparesis, has she had uh, gastric dysmotility syndromes. Mm-hmm. Um, those play an important role in their post-op course. Um, gallbladder issues, liver issues, uh, does she have liver insufficiency, which can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, focusing more on the lung side, we want to know how many times the patient has been admitted to the hospital mm. with uh, exacerbations. Mm. This patient has an FEV1 less than 30%, so that's a pretty objective criteria uh, that she uh, should be evaluated, referred and evaluated for transplant for sure, because that's, that's sort of getting to the end of the road of the lungs uh, for these patients. Um, but the number of times that they've been hospitalized is, is important as well, even if the FEV1 was above 30%, um, what types of complications they've had, aspergillosis, uh, bronchial mm-hmm. bleeds. Um, if you've had <clears throat> two, three, or more hospitalizations for that, it probably behooves them to have an evaluation. Um, the other thing is uh, what type of organisms they've had been colonized with. If they've mm-hmm. had pseudomonas, a little not uncommon, a little bit higher incidence of rejection associated with pseudomonas. Have they had Burkholderia sepatia? Those are very virulent organisms that are sometimes in many centers a contraindication to transplant. Mm. Um, so the infectious milieu is very important to sort out. Sure. Um, 
let's talk a little bit about other indications for lung transplant. Um, what are the some of the other pathology that you see? So uh, ILD, uh, interstitial lung disease, is uh, kind of a broad uh, catch uh, network for a number of different uh, interstitial lung pathologies, such as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Um, short name for that's IPF. Um, or, and, and there's many more, actually, uh, pulmonary fibrotic diseases, some environmental, et cetera, that all fall under ILD. ILD is probably the most common thing that we transplant for nowadays because of uh, the LAS score. Those patients are sicker at the time of presentation, so they tend to present with higher LAS um, numbers. So they tend to be the ones that get transplanted uh, faster, uh, and the survival for those patients has decreased with the LAS score, which is great. Um, the other ones that we transplant for are COPD. Um, there's definitely quality of life benefit for COPD patients. Uh, there's been some debate about whether or not there's a survival benefit for them, and I think it really depends on what the nature of their COPD. No two people with COPD are the same. Some people have been hospitalized with critical illness and really sick with their COPD. Clearly, they have survival benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, very early on in the course of COPD, they may not have a survival benefit. So uh, that, that has to be kind of teased out with the patients. Um, you mentioned cystic fibrosis, uh, bronchiectasis is another diagnosis that falls along with cystic fibrosis. Uh, there's also pulmonary hypertension, um, and, there's, there, and then there's also graft-versus-host disease, um, Cartagena syndrome. There's a, a host of disease processes that affect the lungs that are now more and more mm -hmm. being considered for lung transplantation. Sure. Well, uh, let's move on and talk a little bit about operative techniques. Um, first of all, let's talk a little bit about procurement. Um, what is your uh, thought process when you're looking at a potential donor um, versus the recipient? Sure. So I always think uh, you mentioned three things. You mentioned the procedure, the, the donor, and the recipient. Those are the three. Those are exactly the three components that I look at for any transplant. And uh, there's there's the donor. There's the operation and there's the recipient's condition. If you have a marginal or extended donor, you have to have a good operation and a good recipient. If you have a complex uh, procedure, surgery, then you need to have a good donor and ideally a good recipient. If you have a bad donor, complex operation, complex recipient, that's like a recipe for failure. That uh, makes sense. And a lot of times you find that out uh, the hard way because those are precisely the patients that we try to extend things for, the ones that are sicker, the ones that are a little bit more ill, but they need a break in one of those three categories sure. uh, to make to make the process happen. With donors, um, standard donors are ones that have uh, ABG blood gas ratios uh, on 100% FiO2, a so-called PF ratio, uh, greater than 300, age younger than 55, um, anticipated total ischemic time, meaning from the time that the donor is clamped to the time that the recipient clamps are removed, less than six hours. Mm -hmm. um, so, so by and large, those are like local donors, um, and no abnormalities on chest X-ray. That defines quote unquote a standard criteria donor. Okay. Uh, that's what we we like those. Unfortunately, that's only about five, five to ten percent of transplants. Wow. So. Um, 80% of organ offers are turned down for a variety of reasons, many of which have to do with the fact that they're not standard criteria donors, um, but also for size issues and things like that. Um, the, the term extended criteria donor has been applied to uh, increasing the age beyond 55, um, increasing the P, PF ratio cutoffs to slightly below 300. Mm -hmm. um, 
on that one, I worry a little bit about. I think the PF ratios, if, if there's if they're below 300, then uh, I would like to see it on some sort of ex vivo device or something to validate why it's that low. Sure. Um, and then distance, uh, if you go out a little bit further, those those start to fall under extended criteria donors. Uh, we've been using we've been doing extended criteria donors for a while uh, now, out of necessity, uh, and I mean we as in the whole community transplant community. But they are still the minority. Less than ten percent of transplants are quote unquote truly extended criteria donors. So that's where um, devices like e e ex vivo perfusion devices, EVLP devices, um, I think will be helpful to sort through those and help us to either recondition them or or, uh, or, um, or screen out the ones that are not good. Okay. Um, as far as the actual procurement happens, we go, we do a checklist to make sure that the um, donation requests are all appropriate, that the a, that the ABOs match up, mm -hmm. that you have a, uh, you know, the right uh, blood type for the recipient and matched with the donor. It has to, that can't be checked enough. Um, we make sure that the X-ray imaging <clears throat> is good. We look in the chest to make sure there's no nodules or evidence of uh, malignancy. Or other pathology that might make the might complicate the lung transplant, um, such as uh, significant blebs, adhesions, um, uh, traumas, consolidations, contusions, <clears throat> and it's definitely an art. Uh, there's a spectrum to what you're willing to accept or not. A lot of it has to do with experience uh, in your own personal experience, as well as the published experience uh, before when you make those decisions, and then of course the recipient. Um, the donor procurement fairly it proceeds fairly standard, like standard procurements. Hearts removed first, uh, unless it's all taken in block. Um, <clears throat> after the hearts removed, the lung is removed. We give palmoplegia to protect the lung. It's similar to like cardioplegia, but it's a uh, it's palmoplegia. So it goes in through the pulmonary artery, four liters integrate, and then um, either in the back table or at some point. We give two liters uh, down the veins, so mm -hmm. that goes retrograde, and those are—they're both cold, mm -hmm. and they—they they cool down the organ. Um, they're the most common solution we use now is a Perfidex solution, okay. which is a low potassium dextran type preservative solution. Sure. Well, let's move on and talk a little bit about implantation. Um, how do you decide about the approach to take, and what are some of the key uh, sort of uh, pearls that you would have for us? Yeah, so <clears throat> when you when you think about implanting, um, <clears throat> there's there are two things that come to mind, or or maybe three major areas that come to mind. Uh, number one is what's your uh, what's your approach going to be? How, what's your exposure going to be like? Mm -hmm. Are you going to go through a sternotomy? Are you going to go through a clamshell? Are you going to go through isolated thoracotomies, or are you going to do an isolated posterior lateral thoracotomy? Mm -hmm. And your next question is. How are you going to support the patient during the procedure? Are you going to stay off pump? Um, are you going to go on pump from the very beginning? Mm. Are you going to do use a modified pump that's like ECMO, or are you going to use ECMO? Um, and uh, uh, or are you going to have a contingency plan for being off pump and then going on pump? So uh, unfortunately, we try to keep you know, the maxim is you try to keep things the same way every time, and that's how that's that is how you build consistency. There's a lot to be said for that. But lung transplant has become a little bit um, different because there are so many different types of patients with so many different um, shapes and sizes uh, and needs. Uh, so some, like IPF, a lot of times do need some support, extracorporeal mm -hmm. support. Mm -hmm. Others, like COPD, may not. Sure. Uh, but then we have a lot of unresolved questions, such as 
should they all get support because it controls the, the clamp release reperfusion to the lung when you're on some sort of support mm. um, as opposed to blasting that new lung uh, with, uh, with new blood flow and then pulling hard over while you're working on the other one. So there, there's some questions that will be you know, resolved and will help guide our practices, but those are two things you have to think about is what is your exposure type? I use measurements. I go from the, I, I use a measurement from the skin to the left main bronchus. Mm. If that's deeper than 12 centimeters, um, and if the uh, measurement from the midpoint of the heart to the LV apex is greater than 10 centimeters, then I think that that's going to be a deep and large heart mm. that's going to make the, uh, the anastomosis and exposure, especially on the left side, very difficult. Um, so in those cases, I like to go through a clamshell to go attach uh, approach it peripherally. Um, short of that, uh, I like sternotomy a lot, mm. but sternotomy, you almost always have to be on full cardiopulmonary bypass to do it. And so the question of does that lead to graft dysfunction is, is critical to understand. Um, uh, and then beyond that, the, uh, then then you deal with the uh, question of adhesions. Mm. A lot, some of these patients have a ton of adhesions, and it, and if that's the case, you have to just be prepared for how you're going to deal with that because you want to limit blood loss, you want to keep things quite uh, dry, you want to keep things not too coagulopathic. Um, so it's it's important to kind of anticipate that and how you're going to deal with that going in. Um, the actual anastomosis, some folks do it with clamps on the PA and the, and the vein cuff, which is the standard, probably the most standard way to do them. Um, some folks do them without clamps, so-called open technique. Mm -hmm. and, and obviously to do that, you have to be on full cardiopulmonary bypass support to do that. Mm -hmm. um, the, the airway, we will usually sew it with a running continuous suture line using uh, 4-O-proline. We would line up the membranous portion very symmetrically, uh, and then we go around with a single uh, single suture line. Um, we try to, to clip all of the bronchial arteries on the recipient side. On the donor side, we really try not to skeletonize the donor bronchus. We shave it back, in fact, really far back to the takeoff of the right upper lobe or the takeoff of the left upper lobe. We try not to leave too many bare rings away from that so that it has plenty of scaffolding for neovascularization because mm. that's where it comes from. Uh, the only alternative way to get uh, revascularization of the bronchi is to actually reimplant the bronchial artery in a so-called uh, bar procedure, uh, and and I think that there's that's a very interesting concept and it, it has not taken off widely, but I think it has to be looked at carefully because it's a it's a it's a good procedure. Um, the PA is fairly basic to anastomosis. You just want to make sure it's not kinked, not mm. too long. Mm. As with most PA anastomosis, if it's if it's too long, then it will kink, and you'll have pulmonary hypertension afterwards. So you measure it and you size it. If anything, make it uh, make it stretch a little. You don't want the PA to tear either, um, but you don't want it to kink. Um, that's usually a running 5-0-proline suture line. The vein cuff is you basically take the inferior and superior pulmonary vein and you put a clamp behind them. Uh, and and you open those two into one common channel, one common orifice. Mm -hmm. So you're anastomosing two common orifices together. Mm -hmm. uh, you you usually take the PA clamp off first and reperfuse the lung um, to flush things out, and then you remove the um, atrial clamp to de-air it a bit, uh, and then you finish tying it down and, and you come off. So that's sort of the implant side. Great. Well, um, let's say this 24-year-old uh, female got set of uh, lungs and now is out in the ICU. What is sort of your expected post-operative management and uh, complications that you would be worried about? So 
The first one that we, we look at most commonly is primary graft dysfunction, so or PGD. Primary graft dysfunction is graded from 0 to 3. 0 is it's not present. Um, 1 is it is present but very mild. Uh, almost everyone has some degree of, of PGD by nature of the transplant. Um, 2 is getting a little bit worse, and 3 is the most severe. Um, so we, we look at, at all those and try to... Um, to recognize it, uh, there's, there's, unfortunately, there's not a ton you can do about it other than to support them. And if they are PGD3, it's good to know um, early because then you're starting to think in the back of your mind, well, are they going to need ECMO? Mm -hmm. um, and if they're going to need ECMO, it's sometimes better to, to do that earlier than later, um, just so you're not uh, really pushing their physiology to the extreme for too long before you can so-called uh, rest them. Sure. Um, so PGD is important. It occurs 30% of the time, PGD3, within 72 hours. So it's fairly common. Um, then, uh, then after you know PGD, we look at all, all other systems, as you would for any other case. So um, neurologically, how are they waking up? How are they responding? Or did you do it on pump or, or ECMO? Are they having any kind of stroke-like syndromes that could happen? Um, or brain bleeds or anything like that? Um, how a heart, how's the RV functioning, how is the LV functioning, usually these are screened out, sometimes they have concomitant coronary disease, um, so you have to kind of put that all together uh, and see how it may or may not be affecting their post-op course. Respiratory we discussed, um, hematologically, are they having blood loss? Uh, you know, the take back for bleed rate is not insignificant for these, even in the, like, the best, most high volume centers, it's still about 10%. Mm. That's uh, uh, almost... It's almost four to five times higher than what we would expect for a coronary bypass procedure. We tolerate up to about 2% take-back rate. Um, so so that, that's a pretty high take-back rate. And, and, and my real-world experience has been anywhere from 10 to 15. And I think it's because they're so ill with, for such a long time and debilitated and on a lot of immunosuppression. Uh, and there's so much area that's worked on. That, and, and then when you throw on bypass or things like that, uh, then your chances of having oozing or bleeding can start to go up. So you got to be real careful about that. Um, and then uh, GI, endocrine, immunosuppression issues are fairly standard. Uh, we don't do, uh, what we do for immunosuppression for the most part is give them steroids. Almost everybody has steroids up front, and then we continue that post-op. Cellcept uh, uh, and Prograft are the two other agents that are given. Uh, sometimes up front, in fact, I would say probably more than 60% of programs give it up front, uh, and then certainly continue that post-op. So um, CELSEP, PROGRAF, and steroids are the three most common agents used for immunosuppression. Right. So what can these patients expect in terms of long-term outcomes? They, you know, recover well, they get discharged home. What do you quote them in terms of, you know, um, uh, their lifespan? Yeah. So that, that's a very common question that's asked by patients, their families. Um, there's this concept that, that once they get transplanted, there's like a ticking clock. Uh, and I try to uh, encourage them not to think like that. Mm -hmm. there, there is some truth to that, and I think it behooves us in the scientific community and, and research community to look at chronic rejection. Mm -hmm. And we have to try to work on that and, and, and decrease the incidence of chronic rejection. There's a lot of great models out there now looking at that. 
and uh, I, I think that, that major uh, pulmonary centers around the country, that's something that we need to definitely pay attention to. Um, out of all organs that are commonly transplanted, lung is probably the most likely to have rejection. Mm -hmm. And it's because it is so exposed to the environment, it's a, it's a milieu for antigens. So mm -hmm. it can get a lot of antigens, plus infectious um, antigens can present themselves as well as exposure to environmental antigens. Um, so it's, it's uh, a recipe for antigenic exposure. Having said that, uh, I, I can't tell you how many patients I have that I see in clinic for, that are 10 years out, 15 years out, doing mm. great, still out. Uh, I know an Olympic ice skater who's now still skating, you know, wow. out and, and teaching people. Um, I know a person who had uh, a heart lung transplant done 20 years ago and is still doing amazing and doing support group networks all over the country. Um, so the odds are in their favor that they'll do well, but I do tell people that Five years from now, there is on average a 50% chance of experiencing some form of rejection. Mm -hmm. And so we have to stay on top of that and treat it well. Um, infectious complications, the most likely reason that people will die, actually, after a lung transplant on the long, long haul. So we try to tell them to be careful with things like flus, um, viruses, uh, any kind of uh, insults that can lead to pulmonary infections needs to be very carefully uh, considered. The good news is people who survive the first year after transplant, so so-called conditional survival, um, have a median survival of close to nine years. So, mm -hmm. so that's nine years median. So that means you have some that are out to uh, 18, 20, some that are lower, some that are out three or four um, before they die. So it's, uh, it's definitely at the extreme of pathologies that we see and we deal with, no question about it. But patients who come onto the wait list are they're burning with uh, air hunger. Like they right. really can barely, right. barely, barely breathe. Well, thank you, Dr. Lohr. Um, lung transplantation can certainly offer uh, markedly improved quality of life and life-saving in most cases and, and clearly plays an important role in patients with severe end-stage lung disease. Um, and thank you also for the work that you're doing with expanding the uh, pool of donors with the ex vivo lung perfusion. We look forward to see the results of the trial. Thanks. This is great being here with you.